Hi, good morning. I'm Rob Thompson. I'm on the church council. Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation 4 and 5. Chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they, were, they existed and were created. So right there, at the beginning of Revelation 4, we get this description. After this, I, John, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And that word behold, or look, is, is repeated again and again. And what we get here is John is standing there, and all of a sudden it's, behold, look, hey. And what he sees is heaven or a door open to heaven. And the amazing thing about this is I think one of the things that John is trying to get at in the way he's describing this is heaven, which is uh, in, in biblical way of talking about it, it's not a thing up there. It is the realm of God's reign. Heaven is the realm of God's reign where God is seated on his throne. And basically what John is saying is, I saw the unseen reality. Almost like I've been in this room my whole life and all of a sudden I looked out and saw the bigger world outside the window. So the unseen reality, behold, wait, it was here all along. How come I didn't notice this? And then what he sees is a door open to heaven. And I love this. I'm just going to point this out here just as something to reflect on is just a couple verses earlier is the end of the, the description of, of the Lord speaking to the seven churches. And it's the church in Laodicea that was lukewarm. And it finishes with this phrase, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. Whoever opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, dwell with him, be with him. 
And so it's almost like what's going on here is John is being invited into the throne room of God because he has already opened the door of his heart to God. So to those who, whose heart is opened, the unseen reality of heaven being the true reality is right there in front of you. And so then we get this whole vision, this grand vision of the throne room that's then followed in chapter 5 by this worrisome uh, event at the beginning. We're going to read Revelation 5 in just a second. And the worrisome revel- uh, thing at the beginning of uh, chapter 5 is that while he's in the throne room, John sees a scroll in the right hand of the one on the throne. But somebody says, an angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And nobody was found who was worthy. Nobody in heaven and on earth. Nobody could open the scroll. And, and John begins to weep. And then one of the elders in the vision that we just saw says, do not weep. Do not weep. There is one who is worthy. Behold, he says again, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has conquered. And then in the very next verse, the lion of the tribe of Judah is a lamb who has been slain. So again, we're asking, how does the vision of Revelation 4 and 5 want to shape our posture towards the world? Let's listen again to the reading of Revelation 5 this time. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. Revelation 4 and 5 invites us to see, respond, 
and follow the one on the throne. See, respond, and follow the one on the throne. First, it calls us to see. And what does it call us to see? It calls us to see the one who is on the throne. It's pretty simple, right? But I think Revelation 4 and 5 wants us to see the one who is on the throne. And the one who is on the throne is in chapter 4, the Lord God Almighty. And we see the majesty of God. That's what all that imagery of rainbow and lightning and thunder and emeralds and other jewels that I don't know what they are. It's the glory and grandeur and majesty of who God is seated on the throne. And then the other descriptions give us the authority of the Lord God. It says there are 24 elders seated on thrones and with crowns themselves seated around. In the ancient world, a king who conquered other kings had them brought into his throne room if he didn't have them killed. And they were basically vassal princes now. And he showed his authority because even the greatest of the kings of other lands were under him. Here we have these 24 elders seated around in white robes, seated on thrones, underneath the one who is truly on the throne. In addition, we get the imagery of fire that when we talked about Daniel chapter 7 a couple weeks back, we saw that fire was the description of judgment, of God as the one who is able to truly judge the world. He sits enthroned. He sits as judge, and everything obeys him. Even the sea is made of glass, like crystal is the description which the sea in the ancient world was symbolic of mythological evil or spiritual evil or of just death. And even the sea is completely calm in his presence. Creation, spiritual creation, the mythologies of the world, all the powers of the world, everything is submissive to the one who is on the throne, the Lord God Almighty. And then in chapter 5, we get another layer of who is on the throne. We get the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is a lamb. And ultimately, it's a lamb who is on the throne. So the description was uh, of a scroll that needs to be opened. And no one on earth or under the earth is worthy. No one in all creation is worthy to open the scroll. And what is the scroll in chapter 5? The scroll, most commentators would suggest, and I think this makes sense too, is the scroll is God's plan for creation. It is his plan of redemption for history. We would simplify that by saying the gospel message, because that's what God's plan was for all of creation. It was to redeem for himself a people, to renew the creation through the death of his son. So who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, no one, except the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is the Messiah. But he's not just a conquering lion. He's a conquering lion because he gave up his life as a lamb who was slain, meaning his, his death was for us and for our sin. It was an atoning sacrifice. He was killed to redeem us. In other words, the one who is worthy is the one who is the unfolding of God's plan as it is. So the first thing that we are called to see that Revelation 4 and 5 wants us to see is the one who is on the throne, the Lord God Almighty, the lamb who was slain. But I think it's also trying to get us to see, or rather, it wants us to not see something. Not, it's, it's to see who is not on the throne, is, is the way I would put it. So Revelation 4 and 5 wants us to see who is not on the throne, especially for the people in that day and age. So the imperial cult, or the, 
meaning the religious worship of the emperor, was something that was begun in the later centuries of the Greek empire and then carried on by many of the Roman emperors. And basically the concept was that the emperors were thought of as divine in some way. Pretty much all of them were recognized as divine, as gods when they died. Some of them took that on in themselves. We see this in some of the historical uh, documents that record the writings of the songs written for and about emperors. The Caesars were called in these songs, the Holy One, or they would sing, salvation belongs to you. Glory and honor and power belong to you. The emperor at the time of um, at the time of the writing of Revelation was Domitian. He took on for himself a title. His title was Lord and God. The imagery of the godness of the emperor was all around you if you lived in that ancient world. The coins went from having pictures of the gods on them to pictures of the emperors. The streets and buildings were named after emperors as a way to imprint them with their kind of god-like stature. Temples were built not just for the gods of Greek or Roman mythology, but they were built for the emperors to worship them. All of this reinforced the authority, the absolute total control and authority that Rome had over its citizens and over those that it controlled in the distant lands. Rome had their glory and their majesty pushed on all the people at all times. Their power was absolute. Their authority was complete. They could do whatever they wanted to you. And a Christian in that ancient world, the Christians that John is writing to in the book of Revelation who were in Asia Minor, they lived in fear. Their life was constantly under threat, under the power and authority of Rome. You must bow to Rome or you will die. Revelation 4 and 5 is the point in the book of Revelation when the curtain is pulled back and true reality is seen. And God is saying through John to the Christians, look who is truly on the throne. Heaven is not up there, something you need to escape to get to, to get away from here. Rather, heaven is the reality behind, underneath, and all around what you think of as reality. God's reign, God's kingdom, and the one who truly has the throne and authority and control is real reality. That's what we are meant to see and not see. And I think we need to bring that to our present day, which is what do we see and not see? Or rather, what do we need to see and not see? I think one of the issues that we can deal with is that we see certain things all around us all the time, and we think that's reality. And, and in a sense, it is, right? This is the reality in which I live, and I'm hungry, or I'm tired, or I do read the news, or I go outside and see the weather. But when we look at things like the direction of our culture, cultural trajectory, where things are going, and people here in the West will see, oh my goodness, you know, we're increasingly secular, or there's growing anti-Christian sentiment or direction and often in that, we can become fearful. I know, I can do that too. Because we think, what if, what, if, what if we lose power? What if we're not in political power or economic power? What if, we, what if we lose our rights? And when we ask the question of ourselves, who is in control? Who has power right now? It's hard for us because we see and we live in the here and now. 
We're very this world people. And it's why we live with a lot of anxiety and fear, or we react in defensiveness or anger. And that could be not just about the culture. It could be about our place at work. It could be about the life of our kids. It could be about anything. We live in the here and now. And as we kind of dwell on that, it can cause us to be anxious. Revelation 4 and 5 wants us to see that the one who is truly on the throne is not the one who seems to be. Regardless of who seems to be in this world, it is not in control. The one on the throne in Revelation 4 and 5 is. So we're meant to see that. So first we're called to see. Secondly, we are called to respond to what we see. And the way that they respond in Revelation 4 and 5 is in worship. It's the description of worship. Basically, if I was going to sum up what worship is with regards to God, it's to declare who God is and what he has done. That's essentially what worship is when we think about it in terms of like something that they're saying or doing. And we see this in the song lyrics of Revelation 4 and 5. If you have a Bible, you can look and see that there are indented little sections that are uh, song lyrics because the elders or the angels or the, tw- uh, the four living creatures are declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive power and glory. Those song lyrics declare who God is and what he has done. What's interesting is that they are calling us to declare truth about God. That's what worship is. It's acknowledging the truth of who God is, who is truly on the throne and what he has done. And I love how Revelation 4 and 5 gives us who is worshiping God in heaven. Who is worshiping God first are these 24 elders who sit on 24 thrones. As we talked about in the past couple of weeks, the the number 24 is a multiplication of 12, the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 disciples, apostles that were called to follow Jesus. And they represented the wholeness of God's people. Old and New Testament, the fullness of God's people, what we would call today the church, big C. It is all of God's people represented in the heavenly realm in these 24 elders. They are worshiping God. On top of that are these four living creatures, which at first sound pretty normal, like a lion and a man and, you know, an ox. But then they have wings and eyeballs all over them. And what we're meant to see in this is not necessarily actual creatures, but symbolic of all of creation, all of living creation. All that God has created is worshiping him. And then actually, if you read through chapter five, there's a walk down of those who worship God. In chapter five, verse eight, it's the four living creatures. All of creation is worshiping God. In response to that, in verse 11 of chapter 5, the 24 elders, the church, the Christians, believers in in God throughout the centuries, they worship God as creation worships God. And then eventually the angels, the countless angels, verse 11, worship God. And lastly, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that includes, according to this, even those who reject God. They must, in the end, bow their knee and acknowledge who is on the throne. This is an echo of Philippians 2, 
where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They cannot help it, but in the end, bow. And that's essentially what is being talked about here, is worship is the bowing of the knee. When we talk about worship, oftentimes we think about, um, you know, we, we talk about like a church service, like what we're doing right now is worship. And I want us to think about some of the elements that maybe are, are, are present in a church worship service, but also how it should play on our daily worshiping lives to be a reflection of Revelation. Here's the things that I'm going to say is worship is personal and communal. It is emotional and intellectual. It is physical and spiritual. So hear that again. Worship is personal and communal. We often think about our faith, our religion, especially in America, as something that is private. But worship in the setting of Revelation 4 and 5, and that we're called to, is not just personal, although it is that you personally have to acknowledge who God is to worship him. But it is always also communal. It is public. That's why we gather as the church and why actually, you know, and hopefully as the vaccine rolls out and as weather gets better, we can gather again as God's people. We need to be in each other's presence. That I, I know many of you love being able to just be in your bed by yourself, not having to shake hands with people. And there's an element of our personal devotional life that we need to cultivate. But for it to be real, worship needs to be declarative and public. It needs to be a part of, we're not in this by ourselves. We're in this together. And it is saying, I'm not ashamed to acknowledge who I believe is on the throne. Worship is also emotional and intellectual. I think many of us, uh, based on our just wiring, can fall into one of those camps, either being intellectual or being emotional, and we think that's what worship should look like. But true worship is actually both emotional and intellectual. It is incorporating all of who we are, and it is declaring truth. And so it, it is your feelings and emotions being bent over to God, but it is not just your feelings and emotions. It is actually built around truth. That's why in the songs that you get in Revelation 4 and 5, do you know that the song lyrics, they all talk about, again, who God is. He is holy, worthy, powerful, full of glory. And what he has done, he created all things. All things exist because of him. He was slain, killed for our redemption. He has redeemed for himself a people. So it's God's nature and the story of the gospel or what are a part of worship. That's truth. That's doctrine, teaching, theology. So it's not just how I feel about God, or I like to think of God as. True worship is intellectual, but it captures our emotion. And that's why, that's why it is also physical and spiritual. It is your whole body is laid out before God. Your whole life is laid out before God. It is incarnational in the sense that we embody physically what God is doing in us spiritually. We see this especially if we're gathered on a Sunday when we sing. Singing a song, like we sing along with uh, Sabrina, singing a song is declaring truth, and singing is actually your voice and your body and your mind and your emotion. It is an incarnational act. And when we engage in the sacraments, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are believing that God is going to be present in the physical elements of the bread and the wine, meeting us spiritually. So worship is personal and communal. It's public. 
It is emotional and intellectual. It is true and it's transformative in us. It is physical and spiritual. We incarnate what we believe and we live it out physically as God is moving in us spiritually. And that's what a Sunday morning is or our own personal devotional life or a corporate devotional life in the ways that we engage in that. But of course, there is more to worship than church meetings. And that's why I love this description in chapter 4, uh, verse 10, where it says the 24 elders who are the followers of the Lord, those who believe in him, the worshipers of God, the Christians, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God. Do you see what they do? They fall down, they worship, and they cast their crowns before God. A crown in that ancient world, you know, we still kind of play up a crown when you're a little kid being a king or a queen or a prince or princess, but a crown in that ancient world was a symbolic, something you wore that described and declared your status in the community or the entire nation and your authority, those who had to bow to you and submit to whatever you wanted. So the crown was an emblem of status and authority in the first century. And we have to remember the first century that John is writing to was an honor and shame culture. You, you desperately wanted places of honor. You wanted to be in a position of um, influence and authority and respect, and your honor would have been shown in the crown. You deserve this sort of honor more than anyone else in the community. And it was also a power culture as nearly every culture has been. Those who wore crowns had the highest status, the greatest authority, all the honor and total power. And yet what are these 24 elders doing? They're laying their crowns down before the one who is on the throne. They're offering their crowns to God. They're saying, this means nothing, it is yours. Anything that I have belongs to you, ultimately. You know, we don't wear crowns, usually. Our modern version of this is, is a little bit different, right? We're not necessarily an honor and shame culture. Here in America, particularly, we, especially in this area, we are success-driven people desperate for success. We're approval-driven people, and we're hungry for independence. We want to be able to do what we want when we want with nobody to say. We are after success and approval and independence, and we see this play out in the way that we approach our career or our school or our friendships, our view of our family, um, even how we think about our own identity. It's built up in all of these things that are essentially the crowns that we are trying to capture or wear or hold on to. Revelation 4 and 5 calls us to worship God by casting our crowns down continually, acknowledging what crown you try to wear. Is it your career? Is it approval? Is it success? Is it your family's happiness? And to lay that before God and say, I give it over to you constantly and continually. I love how Eugene Peterson put it in Reverse Thunder, his book on Revelation. He writes this, In worship, God, not the ego, 
is the center. The self is no longer the hub of reality, as sin seduces us into supposing. We are trained from infancy to relate to the world in an exploratory, exploitative way, refusing and grabbing, pushing and pulling, fretting. The ego is a predator. But in worship, we cease being predators who approach everyone as prey that we can pull into our center. We respond to the center and offer ourselves to God. In worship, we respond to the center and offer ourselves and our crowns to God. So first, Revelation 4 and 5 wants us to see who is on the throne and then respond, worship, laying down everything. And ultimately, it's calling us to follow the one who is on the throne. You know, the book of Revelation is constantly asking the question of where does your loyalty lie? In, in what is your allegiance? Everyone has an allegiance to something, to some set of values, to some kingdom. And the question that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is constantly throwing in front of us is, is your primary allegiance to the dragon or to the lamb? And we say the lamb, of course, as Christians. Like, of course, I want to follow the Lord God, Christ, and not Satan or, or evil, right? But that's essentially what's being asked of or talked about when we, they talk about the mark of the beast or the seal of God. You can see this at the end of Revelation 13, the beginning of Revelation 14. That idea of the mark of the beast is not, as we've talked about, just some number or some microchip. It's rather the question of who or what are you giving yourself to? Who or what are you giving yourself to in life? To the kingdom of Babylon or the kingdom of Zion? Are you living and dwelling and trying to live in the city of man? Or are you living in the city of God? It's a constant question in our lives of which kingdom are you living for? The world's, your own, or God's? Your life will declare what marks you. And it's a question of our priorities, our values, our commitments. It's why Jesus said you can't serve God and money. One or the other is going to be your Lord. If we're going to follow, he's the question of what is your primary loyalty and allegiance? And ultimately, as Christians, we also know this. Here's the really challenging part. To follow the one who is on the throne is to follow him even to death. The lion who conquers. That's the one worthy. And we love that side. Like, yeah, I want to be with the Jesus who conquers. And that's the idea of the one who was the king, who was the son of David, the Messiah. But the way, the way that the Messiah that we believe in, that the Christ conquered, was through death. He was a lamb who is slain. That's the amazing thing, is Jesus' greatest defeat was the sign of his greatest glory. The cross was not just something to kind of like kick on through. Even after his death and the resurrection, the marks of the cross are still on him. His moment of greatest defeat was the foundation of his eternal glory. It was through the cross that he redeemed us. It was through the cross that he is worthy. It is through the cross that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The lamb and his followers, 
the Laminist followers throughout the book of Revelation are constantly losing, suffering, and even being killed by the dragon, by the beast. Babylon constantly looks like it's in control. The dragon is the one winning. The lamb and his followers are being martyred. They're being killed and thrown in the street. They're suffering. But Jesus called us to follow him into an upside-down kingdom. The first will be last, and the last first. You want to find your life? You need to lose it for my sake. To follow the one on the throne, to follow the one on the throne is to lose power and position. It is to suffer and yet to endure. That's the call of faith in exile. Faith in exile is to follow the one on the throne to the end, even into the cross, even to die. And it shapes our posture to the world. You know, when we see and we respond and we follow this one who is on the throne, the lamb who was slain, we don't respond to anything happening in the world with fear and anxiety or with defiance and aggression. We're not trying to escape or trying to fight. Rather, we are at complete peace and hope because we are assured that even in death, even in suffering, we are simply following in the one who sits on the throne. And his place is guaranteed and sure. In the throne, the lamb, and the dragon, Paul Spilsbury sums this up. He says the central message in Revelation is that the one on the throne The central message in Revelation is that the one on the throne, not the one in Rome, not the dragon, not anything else, is in control of the course of history. And so we, we see, we worship, we follow the one who is truly king. Let me pray for us. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. There is one who sits on the throne. It is not us. It's not the powers of this world. There is one who is the true reality. God, give us eyes to see, hearts willing to respond, and the courage to follow you. Amen.